Good morning, if you have your Bibles or your fake Bible, please turn to Ephesians chapter 3 with me, or push buttons to get to Ephesians chapter 3 with me. I don't know about you, but being reminded that, oh God, you'll never leave my side, it's a great reminder as I struggle with sin each and every day, and pursue holiness, and the loneliness that that sometimes brings, I'm thankful to be reminded that height nor depth nor anything else could pull us apart. Why? Certainly because God is strong enough and powerful enough, but because we have been made one with His blood. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. We are in the series talking about the church, talking about God's manifold wisdom on display in the church. So we're going to continue on through that today. We are looking at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, and seeing how those passages speak to our desire as a church to see the gospel renovate everything, ourselves, our lives, our families, our workplaces, our world, our city, all those things through God's people living out their gospel identity in their everyday rhythms. As our vision as a church, I expounded upon it a little bit there, but our desires to look at those kind of things. We're going to look today briefly at the idea of family as an identity. As an identity as a church, we are a family. Although I'm just going to brief, briefly mention that this morning because we're going to hit that really hard in chapter 4. The unity of the body of Christ, the family of God. We're going to hit that a lot more in just a few weeks. I'm sorry, actually it'll be after just in January sometime. We'll be doing that. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about our identity as a missionary today. What does this passage have to say concerning our identity as missionaries? And kind of underneath this general umbrella of a minister of the gospel, we are talking about these particular identities. As Paul says in verse 7, if you read with me here, verse 7, 8, and 9 this morning, of this gospel, Paul says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, the grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And that's where we're going to stop. Let's pray. Father, As we study your word this morning, I pray that it would pierce hearts in such a way that it's not done yet, or maybe in a new and fresh way, Father, that that we would walk away from your text this morning different than we were when we came in this morning. I'll let your word do what only it can do. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read to you briefly from Genesis chapter 2 and kind of set this up this way. Genesis chapter 2 verse 15 through 17 says this, the Lord God took the man and put him 
in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Right? Everybody know the story that I'm reading from here. And the Lord God commanded the man saying this, right? So here's God's first commands to Adam. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, every tree, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So let me set this up this way. Here we see the first command ever given to man. God speaks to man. He says, here is your command. We would also call this part of the Adamic covenant, the covenant made with Adam. And what is he saying here? What is he saying to Adam? He's saying this, you must enjoy every tree in the garden. But that tree, if you eat of it, you will die. Let me phrase it a little bit differently for you. God's first command was this. You must enjoy all of my good provision for you, Adam. All of my provision is here for your enjoyment, for your sustenance, to keep you alive and to care for you for all of eternity. I have given you everything you need. I am your source and your provider, and I am your source of unsearchable riches. Everything I have is yours, Adam. I will care for everything that you need. But do not eat of that tree. In doing so, you will proclaim your independence of me and your ability to provide for yourself. You will, in essence, be saying, Adam, that I don't need you, God. I am good on my own. And all of your provision is not good enough. I must provide for myself. Then as Adam lives out this good news of God as the provider, right? So this is pre-fall. As Adam lives out this good news of the provider, he will be ministering the gospel to the entire world. What will Adam be saying? He'll be saying that my God is good and my God cares for me and my God takes care of everything that I need. That man is wholly dependent on God and God is gracious to care for man. So as Adam spreads out, as we talk about expanding the garden, what is he doing? As, as Adam is to fill the earth with image bearers of God, what is, what is he doing? Well, at his very core, he is spreading out this idea that man needs God, and God is gracious to care for man. That man is needy, but that God is gracious in caring for him. And so right here in Genesis 2, we see a foreshadowing of the gospel. Certainly is not every component of the gospel, but you see at the very core of mankind is this man's declared need of God and God's gracious taking care of man. As we think about that, our problem is not that we don't often recognize that we are needy people. Our problem is that we don't realize we are needy in the actual taking care of our brokenness. What I mean by that is, we search to care for the things that we see that are not right, and we seek to do that in our own way. When God has provided His way to fix all the brokenness. So, but we think we can fix the brokenness. We think we can fix other people's brokenness. So what do we do? 
we proclaim a gospel that we have acquired from the knowledge of good and evil. Right? So you understand that from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil comes all of this, this uh, fancy uh, figuring and deriving and, and conniving and try to see how we can fix what's going on in our lives and fix what's going on in other people's lives. And, and, and all of this is a derivative of the knowledge of good and evil if it's done apart from and, and not subsequent to but primary and the first place we turn instead of the first place we turn being to the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. What I mean is that in our declaration of we don't need you, God, we can decide what is good and evil on our own, we oftentimes determine our own solution to our own problems. And what's crazy about that is that we could even assess the problems appropriately in our own lives. I mean, it's, it's, it's a terrible assumption. But we see the holes in our own lives often and we just try to fill them with the wrong things. But instead, we need to be people who first turn to the good news of Jesus, repent for anything necessary, and live by faith. And then certainly some of these other good things that we can use in repairing brokenness come into place. But Paul says that, though, it is this gospel that I am a minister of. It's not the minister of our own ability and I'm not a gospel I'm not a minister of my own ability to fix problems I'm not a minister of of my own ability to fix myself he says I'm a minister of this gospel and if you need to know what this gospel is go back and read Ephesians 1 and 2 that is the gospel that Paul is talking about Paul says this again in verse 7. Let me read this. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Now we're going to go on, not this week, but next week, to this idea of the manifold wisdom of God on display. And what is God doing? What do we see here going on with Paul that Paul particularly is beginning to talk about here? He begins to talk about his past. He begins to talk about this evil past where he was an enemy of God. But then what does God do? How does is, how is God display in his manifold wisdom? Well, at the very least, what he does is he takes his enemies and turns them into joy-filled proclaimers of his good news. He takes enemies, rebellious enemies, and turns them into joy-filled proclaimers of his good news. This was the original creation of man. So I want you to see back in the garden that he would live joyfully proclaiming the good news that God is gracious and gracious in our provider, in being our provider. But then the man falls, right? Adam falls. But God takes us wicked, evil people and turns them into what? God-loving people. People with new identities. People who would then become ministers of the gospel. Proclaimers of the right gospel. And God's wisdom is on display in His church when He does this. And what does this look like? What does this look like? What does it look like? What does it look like for God's wisdom when it's on display in the church? What does it look like? Let's answer that question this morning. Verse 8, Paul says to me, though I am the very least of all the saints. I want to encourage you, church, 
ministers, if you're going to be a minister of the gospel, that you should rightfully remember your past. You should rightfully remember your past. You should rightfully remember your past. What do I, what do I mean by that? I mean like, what do I mean by rightfully? What I mean is that there's a right way in which we are to remember our past. So we have to be careful. But there's a right way in which we should remember our past. And it is certainly not right for us to not remember our past. But I want you to notice here Paul's humility. And notice his humility in connection with the rest of the saints. Though I'm the very least of all the saints, he says. And what Paul is doing is he's bringing to the forefront his terrible past. His terrible past of persecuting Christians, of being a very blatant, explicit, tangible display of an enemy of God. And he says that I am the very least of all the saints. What does he mean by least of these? What he literally means is the, the leaster. He means the least of all of those who are least. Right? He's the leaster of all those who are least. I think you could get up what Paul's you can get up off the ground what Paul's laying down. He's saying, he's saying, all of us are worthy of the least position. And I'm the least of all of those in the least position, if there could be such a thing. But before we get too quick into this, I want you to see, his past is not the dominating feature of this paragraph. It's the grace given to overcome his past. That's the dominating feature of the paragraph. Again, though, this points back to the manifold wisdom of God on display in His church. It's this grace that enables Paul to be the missionary that God has called him to be. We'll get to that in a bit. But for right now, Paul understands his brokenness, his neediness. But of course, this doesn't hinder him from his missionary responsibilities. If anything, it profoundly makes him aware of God and His calling and the task that He's called him to. Paul remembers his past and it spurs him on to humility. I want to take just a few brief moments to talk about an imp- implications for family identity. Implications for family identity. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then you should be a member of a body of Christ. And in doing so, you become a part of the family of God. And Paul just said this. He said in Ephesians 2.22, In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Okay, Just said that in chapter 2. In Him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And he's getting ready to lay down a whole lot in chapter 4 about what this unity looks like. So that's why we're not going to talk about it much, and the text doesn't allow us to talk about this a ton this morning anyways. I want you to notice Paul's comparing himself in humility to the rest of the family. We just can't miss that. Paul is looking at the saints and saying, I'm the least of these. Paul is placing himself, if you, if you would, underneath other saints. And just an implication of this for the family of God is that it would do you well and the church well if you would rightfully remember your past. People who remember their past well, thinking in the context of the church family, they receive exhortation well, typically. Love of self doesn't tend to cloud love of family, biological and church. People who remember their past tend to care well for the needs of others. 
People who remember their past are gracious in their pursuit of other people. People who remember their past well, all in all, because they, they do this because all in all because they remember the grace shown to them. And in doing so, they're able to show the grace necessary for the family of God. I mean, God's family is, as Paul is talking about here, is a family built upon grace. As we think about this idea of family, and we think about this idea of pursuing the gospel together, just as a side note here, we're doing life together. I want you to remind you that as, as a church, we are commanded by Scripture to live out the gospel together. It's not an option to live in community together. I want to talk for just a brief moment. If you think through, am I a follower of Jesus Christ? Am I not a follower of Jesus Christ? Or I think I am. I want to be as gracious as I can when I say this. Paul is talking about this past. He's talking about this past where he was an enemy of God. But then he's talking about this grace given him to go preach the gospel. What is he saying? Well, something's happened in my life that's changed that. That this past is now my past. It's no longer my present but it's my past. But the issue is if, if we've not experienced this change, that I'll talk about in just a second, by God, then what was Paul's past would still be his future. And for those who are not followers of Jesus Christ, what was your past is still your present. It's not become your past. You see, Paul was a persecutor of Christians, but then God forgave his past and wiped away the sin. Now, none of us have probably physically killed any Christians. But our proclamation, but when we proclaim, here, I want you to hear all of us. But when we proclaim that there is a way to God other than God's proclaimed way through Jesus Christ. When we say, I can do enough good to get to Jesus. When we say, well, I can <clears throat> or get to heaven or... or you know, I've said enough prayers or so on and so forth. When we do that, what are we doing? We're proclaiming something that's anti-gospel. It's against God's kingdom. So you're actually persecuting God's kingdom when we declare a gospel that's not true. When we say there's another way to heaven, then God's provided means, then we are saying this is not, we don't need that, God. What are you doing? You are persecuting that. It's the same thing Paul was doing. Paul was persecuting God's kingdom. When we proclaim a different way, we are persecuting God's kingdom. So if you're not sure if you're a follower of Christ, I want you to see that. I'm not trying to be mean. I just want you to see that. You're a persecutor just as Paul was a persecutor of the church. But here's the deal. God can forgive you of your past. How does that happen? What's happening here with Paul? We don't want to let the cat all out of the bag, but, but Paul is forgiven of his past. By his grace, by God's grace, Paul is forgiven of his past. In order for us, for this to only be our past and no longer our present state, then I want to encourage you that what we should do, what, what the Bible, we don't have time to go to all these passages, but to encourage you to renounce your own means of salvation. To, to say, God, I, I, I renounce that. I, it's, no, it's not good. It's, it's not worthy. It can't get me to heaven. I say, but God, your means, your way through Jesus Christ, He is the one that paid the price for my sins, who can make me right with you. 
is a repenting of our past and affirming Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. His righteousness, His goodness is sufficient. Having faith in Him as the one who paid the price for your sins. I would encourage you to think through that and pray through that with God, even if you don't hear another word I say this morning. Now, if you are sure that you are a follower of Jesus, if, if, if you think anyways that you are as sure as one could be, that you are a follower of Christ, I want to encourage you, as Paul does here, that you should recognize your brokenness. You should remember your past. Our culture says, forget the past, forget the past, move on, look to the future. But the Bible didn't do that. The Bible says, remember the past. Just remember the past rightly, which is what Paul's doing. More of that in a second. But remember the past. And some of us, because we have forgotten the past, forget how needy we really are. That I would even hear things such as, well, I don't really struggle with that much sin anymore. Baloney! That's just baloney. It makes me mad to hear that. We're needy people. We're broken. Paul, Paul of all people, remembers his past. Let me give you an illustration. Thinking in terms of how, realizing how broken, remembering our past. And remember our, if we remember our past, remember, then we recognize our tendency to go back to that. If you think about my illustration last week as I gave about the example with Sarah and I, Last week where I came in and, and responded in pride and defensiveness and such with my wife and later asked her for forgiveness. But how different would it have been if I would have responded out of a recognition of my neediness instead of a recognition of my pride? How might that have looked different? You see, going back to the garden, it remembers who is my provider, who is the one who sustains me, versus I'm good on my own, I've got this figured out. Paul remembers his past. And so some of us need to just recognize this. This is our past. Some of us need to go revisit our past to be reminded of it. Now some of us do that all the time. All right? Some of us remember our past all the time. And we get discouraged by it, and we lose hope by it. But that's because, that's where we kind of go back to the beginning of the thing. That's what Paul's doing, is rightfully remembering his past. And I want to encourage you that you're not rightfully remembering your past. You're just remembering your past. Paul rightfully remembers his past. Because then what happens with, with Paul is that he, out of this, he recognizes this profound calling to be a missionary. Some of you know that you are needy, but you don't know that you have a profound calling in that neediness to be a missionary. And that it is precisely your brokenness that goes hand in hand with your calling. That's what's happening with Paul. His brokenness, his neediness is going hand in hand with his calling to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. God doesn't call self-sufficient, prideful people who have so forgotten their past that they consider themselves righteous on their own. He doesn't call them to be missionaries. He calls people who have profoundly understood their brokenness and their need for God to be their missionary, to be his missionaries. Look at verse 8 and 9 with me again. To me, 
though I am the very least of all the saints. This grace was given. This grace was given, right? I recognized my need, my brokenness, where I was. But this grace was given to preach the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. I want you to see here, and really the kind of the main thrust of today is that ministers of the gospel are missionaries. We are missionaries. A missionary is not someone who raises support and goes to Africa, although certainly that's a missionary. But that's not the only people who are missionaries. Jesus Christ, the greatest endeavor of missional activity we see on display in all four Gospels. Jesus, the greatest missionary. I'm talking about leaving and going cross-culturally, right? Jesus does that. He goes and proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ, of Himself. We are called to this too. I like what J.I. Packer says. He says, Always and everywhere, the servants of Christ are under order to evangelize. Let me repeat that for you again. Always and everywhere, the servants of Christ are under order to evangelize. There is nowhere that you go and nothing that you do where you are not under the order and command of Christ to proclaim the unsearchable riches and the good news of Jesus Christ. Nowhere. You are more fundamentally a preacher of the gospel before you are a nurse, a house VP, a computer engineer, or a policeman. It doesn't matter. You're a most fundamentally a minister, a missionary of the good news of Jesus Christ. That is the top priority on your job description. We are proclaiming. What are we proclaiming? We are proclaiming. What is Paul proclaiming here? When he thinks about this on behalf of the Gentiles, and, and he's proclaiming to the Gentiles, which is which what we need to think is instead of just Jews. I think it's easy in our minds to think Jews, Gentiles. It's Jews, rest of the world. Okay? But it's easy for us just to think this group of Gentiles. No, no, no. Jews, world. What are we doing to the world? What does that remind you when we think about proclaiming good news to the world? I hope that eventually that would take you back to Genesis chapter 12 and Abraham. What's he say to Abraham? That God would have a people, that He would make a people for Himself, that they would live in God's place, and that they would what? They would be a blessing to the what? To the world, to the nations. So what does He say here? So He says, verse 8, to me, though I am very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the world the unsearchable riches of Christ. And, and I want to come back to that in just a second, but I want to go into verse 9 for a moment. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. What are we to do? If we are missionaries of the gospel, what are we to do? We are to help people understand God's salvation. We are to help people understand God's... Now, now, here's the deal. I know, I know. We're going to go, duh, Matt. Right? Duh, Right? I know, that's what I'm supposed to do. I get it. I get it. But do we? Do we? 
Now, I don't want to go all law on you, right? But Paul's talking about here, his job is to bring this to understanding. So right now, I just want to, us to understand that our job is not just specifically, and here's where I want to drive, it's not just specifically to, to proclaim, right? So we just simply have to state to the people around us the way to heaven. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's talking about bringing to light, bringing to understanding, explaining, bringing out the details, showing how it works together. He is saying, I bring to light for everyone. What is the plan? I'm shining light onto something that's not understood, something that's not known. And if you think about this good news, there's lots of people around us that need the light shown onto this gospel. I want to point out to you a couple main things here underneath this heading. First one is this. It's always been God's plan. It's just been hidden. That's always been God's plan. To bring to light for everyone. What is the plan of the mystery hidden for all ages? So this plan, this mystery, has always been God's plan. It's just been hidden. And now it's been revealed. So the God in whom this secret follow me here, had been previously hidden. This God is the one who created, Paul says, created all things. So in this guy, God who created all things, this mystery has been hidden for all ages, but now revealed. So the God who has redeemed His people and reconciled them through Jesus Christ's death and reconciled them to Himself and to one another, this is the God who, Paul says, created everything. What is Paul doing? What is, why would Paul take us back to the one who created everything? I think Paul is taking us back. I think he's picking up on what he said back in Ephesians 1, verse 4 through 5. Look at that with me. It says, even as he chose us in him before what? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Well, I think what Paul is doing is he's saying he had God, this God had prepared this plan to rescue these people before the creation. Before the creation. Think about this. So God's not created, but I'm going to create these people. I'm going to rescue them. I'm going to pour out my mercy and grace on them. And I'm going to display my manifold wisdom through them for all eternity that they will be objects of my affection, that these will be my people. So what happens then in the creation? Because we can fail. We can begin to think, well, God messed up in the creation and now has to fix everything. And No, 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 no. This plan that God made, that he would choose a people, that he would rescue them, that he would save them, make them objects of his affection, and display his manifold wisdom through his glory, creation of the earth, and all that that entails, that God who created all things, that that creating of all things is very simply this, a major step in God's plan to carry out in making a people for himself. So Paul is saying this. Paul is saying that my job is to bring to light for everyone that this God who created all things declared before His creation even began that He would make a people for Himself, that He would bring them to worship in His place, and that they would be a blessing to the world. And that in His creation, He has taken one big step in completing that task. 
Salvation taken to all people, not just the Jews, has been God's plan for all time. His creation of heavens and the earth is an important step toward that end. And Paul is saying he is the God who created all things. The second kind of thing I want you to see underneath help people understand God's salvation is this. Bring the gospel to understanding. Bring the gospel to understanding. I get it. The Holy Spirit ultimately is the one who has to enlighten their hearts and illuminate their minds to see the glory of the good news of Jesus. Okay? Got that. So you don't need to accuse me of leaving, leaving out the Holy Spirit here, okay? But just notice that Paul doesn't mention him here either. Verse 9, and to bring to light for everyone. Paul is so consumed by the unsearchable riches of Christ that he cannot help but bring understanding to everyone that he can at every chance he possibly can. I'll read to you a quote from John Stott. It says this, speaking of Paul in Ephesians, he says, he shared all possible truth with all possible people in all possible ways. He taught the whole gospel to the whole city with his whole strength. His pastoral example must have been an unfailing inspiration to the Ephesian pastors. And to add to Stott, I'd say to all of us. All people, in all possible ways, with everything that he had. Paul was commissioned to make the gospel known to everyone with every ounce of energy that he had. This sounds a lot like the Great Commission, eh? When Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations. You see, Jesus was about the Gentiles long before Paul ever came along. Jesus is pointing out, it's, it's my declaration that you go to all nations. Understand that if you are a follower of Jesus, that you have been commanded to bring to light the good news of God's salvation. Not, it's not a choice. It's a command. And it's good for us to hear as Christians that our Savior has commanded us to do this. I would encourage you that we should do this even when we don't feel like it. And then repent and work through the not feeling like it in time. Understand, we are a follower. You are a missionary. Before you are anything else, you are a minister of the good news of Jesus. This is your highest title. Now, if it's not obvious, I want to point out a couple things here. You must understand the gospel yourself. You must understand the gospel yourself. Not just in a mental capacity, but in a heart capacity as well. I want to encourage you, unashamedly, know the gospel backwards and forwards. If you don't, read, read, study, study, read, study, read, study. Know it back and forth. Backwards and forwards. It's just crazy for you not to. Study it. Ask God to to just... Wipe, uh, just, to, just to take over your mind with the good news of Jesus Christ. See, you cannot bring to understanding in other people what you do not understand yourself. 
So I think if we're going to bring to light for everyone, then the implication is, is it needs to be brought to light for us. I get it. God can use people who don't quite understand. I don't want to exclude that. But I don't know about you, but I don't want to be the guy who doesn't understand it that God's using instead. Or God's using even though. You must understand the gospel yourself. And you need to discern their understanding. I get it. Your role, right? So, so again, if we're talking about bringing to light to, to other people, then we need to know, is it coming to light in their lives? Again, not just in a mental capacity, but in a heart capacity as well. Again, okay, ultimately, only God knows whether or not someone comes to faith in Christ through your missionary efforts. Got it. But the Scripture also gives us clear markers to help us in discerning whether or not someone else has gotten it. I want to encourage you in house gatherings this week to flesh that out. I want you to think specifically, go to texts that would help us discern if someone has had the gospel brought to light in their lives. Now, our job is not to be the Holy Spirit, but our jobs are to bring to light the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul's doing. Paul, by the grace of God, remembering his past, is going to the world, particularly here. He's talking to the Ephesians and, and to those in his sphere. And he is going to them, proclaiming the good news, seeking to shine light on the gospel to these people. Now, I want to pick up on something we talked about a little bit last week. When we think about our honor as being a minister of the gospel. What do you think about? When you think about being a minister of the gospel, and you think about it being an honor to do so. Like what, what goes on in your mind? What goes on in your heart? What goes on in your motivations? When you think about getting to share the saving news of Jesus with your own heart every day, what do you think about this opportunity? What is your motivation for doing such things? For sharing the gospel? When you think about shining the light of the gospel for your coworkers or your neighbors or your kids or your spouse, what do you think about? Does this sound like something of honor that you get to do? What is your motivation for doing such things? Or, or maybe there's a lack of motivation. Well, probably many of us in this category or probably fit in this category, myself included. Some, some of us are not ministers of the gospel because our understanding of the gospel is just simply poor. Some of us could grow in being ministers of the gospel if we would check our motivation. And as I've said, I think a little bit last week, and I know in house gatherings, some outline to share our faith is not going to fix our lack of preaching the gospel to ourselves and those around us. I've been a part of churches that, well, I'm going to memorize this outline, you know, the faith program or uh, four, spir- uh, four spiritual laws, five spiritual laws, however many spiritual laws there is, uh, you know, and then, or grow, or these, these other things. And knowing they're saying it's not going to fix it. Just like the law doesn't fix our problem, 
But what will fix it, I believe, is this. is tasting the unsearchable riches of Christ. I think that fixes it. I think that's what Paul, I mean, if I'm understanding the text, this is what going, is going on in Paul right here. This is what Paul has been doing for us in Ephesians thus far. What's he been doing? Church, everybody look at me. Look at me, everybody, everybody. He's been proclaiming to us the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's been doing. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, up to this point, he's been proclaiming the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. Okay, you can go back taking notes. Look, go, go back, go to your Bible. Go back to chapter 1. Let's just do this real quick for fun. Look at verse 3. All right, just follow real quickly with me, okay? It's not going to be up on the screen. You got to go to your Bible. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has what? Blessed us in Christ. What? With every spiritual blessing. We're at every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Well, that's a rich. That's a, a richness that is ours. Who can search that? Who can understand all of that? Then he goes, even as he chose us, this idea of election. What an unsearchable richness. That we should be holy and blameless. What is that? What's he do? That he would, what an unsearchable richness that we, dreadful sinners, could somehow, some crazy way, in some time, in Stand before God as holy and blameless. He predestines, verse 5, predestines for adoption as sons. That we become his children. That we not only just become in right standing with God, but that he would call us son. And that he would then give us his unsearchable riches. All, I mean, all this in Christ Jesus. All this to the praise of His glorious grace. Verse 7, in Him we have redemption through His blood. What an unsearchable richness. The forgiveness of our trespasses. Amazing. According to the riches of His grace. And then He lavished this on us. And He did it in all wisdom and insight. What unsearchable truth we have here. Making known to us the mystery of His will. This unsearchable richness He is making known to us. Then we talk about this inheritance that we have. What's this inheritance? It's this unsearchable riches of Christ. It's this inheritance, verse 11, that we have been predestined for. Because we've just gotten to verse 11. I'll stop there. My goodness. And I'm sure I missed a handful of things. He's been giving us a taste of the unsearchable riches of Christ. And then... I think Paul is preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ to himself. I, I can just imagine penning these words, right? Can, can you imagine with me penning these words to share with other people and what's happening in Paul's heart at the same time? I think Paul is preaching it to, he's preaching it to them. But here's the deal. Ministers of the gospel, people who are missionaries, what do we preach? We preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. We preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. I'm convinced and we don't proclaim the gospel because we're not convinced of the unsearchable riches of Christ. Look at verse 8. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. 
church, let me tell you, let me give you something that he's saying here, okay? We don't preach salvation, salvation by doing all things right and keeping all these rules. We don't preach that kind of salvation. Every other world religion does. We preach a gospel where the weak, wounded, and spiritually bankrupt are the only potential recipients of the gospel. Why? Because it's the only people who have room for the unsearchable riches of Christ. We preach to them the unsearchable riches of Jesus. The unsearchable riches of Christ are not the ambiguous, charismatic, existential malarkey that many people proclaim today. The unsearchable riches are not some emotional high that you long for or wait for each and every day. The unsearchable riches of Christ are not some feelings that authorize, define reality. The unsearchable riches are not an excuse to be lazy in knowing Jesus. So then what are the unsearchable riches of Christ? Paul uses rhetorical language to show that his proclamation is about the wealth of divine grace and glory which Christ possesses in himself. Let me say that one more time. Paul uses rhetorical language to show that this proclamation is about the wealth of divine grace and glory which Christ possesses in himself. He says the unsearchable Riches of what? Of Christ. These unsearchable riches are all Jesus's. They're His. They're His riches. And He has them in and of Himself. All of this goodness to dive into, to understand, to know, to experience, to love, to be a part of for eternity are all Jesus's. It's His. And His on His own. These riches that are unsearchable are Christ's. This grace and glory that he possesses, all right, all of that, that these unsearchable riches, this grace and glory, this wealth of grace, this wealth of glory that Jesus has, he says, Paul says, that he lavishes that on us. Now these... What does he mean by unsearchable riches? Unsearchable literally means like unfathomable, impossible to comprehend. Impossible to comprehend. Paul uses the same language in a passage in Romans 11. You can look there later, but right now, verse 32 and 33. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. What a radical statement, by the way. Then verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Now I want you to see here that the point that Paul's making here, okay, when he says unsearchable, he does not mean completely not understandable. You've got to see the paradox that's happening here in the passage. What has Paul just said a little bit before this? He said that the mystery has been revealed to him. And yet it is unfathomable. So he says both things within just a couple verses. It's been revealed to me. What does it mean to be revealed? It means to have understanding. To get it. But then he's saying that it's unfathomable. 
So the issue here is not that it's not understandable. But you see, many religious people claim this. Well, God is so mysterious, we really can't know His ways. What is that? That's just an excuse to make someone feel better who doesn't want to read their Bible. Yes, God's ways are totally and completely, yes, God's ways are not, not totally and completely understandable. We will not completely traverse the depth of Him and who He is and His riches. That's Paul's point. The point is you could never fully and completely expire the depths of the riches we have in Christ. But he's saying here that it's been revealed. We can know. We should know. We must know. How, how are we going to bring it to light if we can't understand any of it? No, we can. And so because we can't understand it, we get to bring it to light for other people. So that's this unsearchable riches of Christ. We can know. But we can never know all of it. They're unsearchable. I want to point out to you also here that true wealth is defined here for us as the riches of Christ. True wealth is defined here for us as the riches of Christ. You know, in Ephesians 1 and 2, Paul's discussed the significant elements of God's plan of salvation. This including the Gentiles. Salvation is tied then to these riches in Christ. And we should know from a broader biblical context that anything tied to salvation is the true, eternal, and greatest reality of anything. And all of these riches will be added to those who respond to the gospel that Paul is preaching. All of these riches. Guys, wealth is not wrapped up in this world. It's not the acquiring of possessions. I mean, we know that, but why? Because we have unsearchable wealth in Jesus that lasts for eternity. That we could never, we could never reach the bottom of it. If we were to, as Scrooge McDuck, right, would dive into his big money vault. There's just no way to reach the bottom. Just think about that in application. Parents, what riches are you proclaiming and giving to your kids? Husbands, wives, what kind of riches are you wanting to give to your spouse? When we think about co-workers, what, what riches do they believe are most important to us? True wealth is defined here for us as the riches of Christ. But you see, right? So you can see what happens here. When we become so saturated and convinced of the riches of this world, what gospel do we proclaim? That the world's enough. That the riches of this world is my salvation. That this is, this is the way to life goodness, life everlasting and goodness and happiness and tranquility. But what if we're convinced that true wealth is in Christ and that these glorious truths of salvation, 
whether that be the atoning work of Christ on the cross, the election, whether that, whether that be saved for all time, nothing can rip us from His hands, or, or that God has made this plan and provided for it from eternity past, and convinced of these riches, and then all we stand to inherit, whatever that is, my goodness. And if we're convinced of that, what would come out in our lives, right? Out of an overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what's coming out of our mouths? True wealth is defined here for us as the riches of Christ. So what would I say here as we head towards closing this morning? You must be tasting the unsearchable riches of Christ. You need to be tasting the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul is so convinced of these true riches in Christ that he is almost overwhelmed at the great privilege given to him as a missionary of proclaiming God's great kindness in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I wonder if you and I are convinced of the unsearchable riches of Christ. I'm not talking about meditating on some experience that you've had in the past. I'm talking about this. How far into the depth of knowing the riches of Christ through His Word have you dug? How much? The riches of Christ are explained in here. I mean this. Are you still trying? I was thinking about like a a metaphor to kind of describe it. All I could think of is my house is on a well, right? If you've ever been a house on a well, yes, it tastes like you have to have a good palate, I guess, to enjoy iron, okay? I don't have that kind of palate. I like filtered water that you can taste nothing, and then I like to add flavor to it. <laughs> Sometimes the flavor just doesn't cover up the iron, you know, if you know what I'm saying. But I want you to think about that. What, what happens, though, whether it's got iron or not, Water brings life, does it not? So I was thinking about this. We, like when we think about digging to God's Word and knowing the unsearchable riches of Christ as much as we can. I mean, are we trying to still just get through the grass that's on top? Or have you made it into the soil yet that kind of brings nutrition? Or have you made it below that to below in this area, the frost line? All right, the frost line is where it stops freezing when it gets so cold. Well, what is the frost? How important is the frost line? In this area, it's like 36 to 42 inches. What they do is they lay foundations of buildings below the frost line. Why? Because the ground doesn't expand and contract and expand and contract. And so it sets the foundation rooted down here where it cannot be moved. Or even better yet, if you made it through the, if you think about, again, this area, the rocky and sandy and clay that's below all of that, that filters out the water as it comes down through the ground and it gets cleaned through all that before it deposits, deposits into the aquifers below the area that we live. Or have you made it in the scriptures to where the deep wells of life-giving water burst forth? That brings eternal life. I just give you continue, and I'm, I'm not saying that each of these levels are bad. I'm just saying like, dig, 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 dig. You taste, and you want more. 
Now, I don't, here's the deal. I don't want to guilt you into studying your Bible. I don't want to bring law. What I want you to do is I want you to taste and see that the Lord is good. You all know how much of a foodie I am, right? You'll give me a hard time about that all the time. Like, I'll eat about anything, but I really like good food, okay? I really do. Now, I'm going to brag here for just a moment, but I've tasted better food than many of you will probably ever taste, right? I really have. And I feel pretty certain about that. Because, you know, the suggestions you all make for eating is just ludicrous, it's crazy. If you've tasted something better, you would not want to go back to that. But here's the deal. Like, I've, if, if that's true, if that's true, okay, let's assume for a moment that that's true, then, I, then I've tasted richness that, like, I really want you to taste. Like I really want you to experience and I would give Ecclesiastes as my theological undergirding for that. Like, I want you to taste it. I want you to taste and what? And see that it is good. And that your palate, you've just been like denying all goodness to that palate. I want you to taste and see that it's good. Some of us don't take people to living water that is Jesus because our palate has become so saturated with the shallow riches of the world instead of consumed with the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. Let our palates be washed clean with the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. That it would consume our thoughts, it would consume our hearts that in that moment of sin, that we would be reminded of the good news of the gospel and the unsearchable riches of Christ. That in the brokenness of that coworker or that neighbor or that child, that we would be most overflowing with the riches of Christ, that we could proclaim that to them in that moment instead of our useless baloney. Let our hearts be consumed. Let's notice forward and backward. Let us taste and see that the riches of Christ are good. You will want more. And you will want the people around you to want more. You will. You know, as we prepare for communion here in just a moment, if you have not repented of your sin and, and trusted Jesus as your Savior and Lord, I want to urge you to do so even this moment. And then, if you do so, then participate in communion with us. But if not, then just watch. Watch as the body enjoys this time. But for the rest of you, let me urge you, if, you have, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, let me urge you, let me urge you, okay? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Not in a mystical, crazy sense, but in a real objective word sense. As we celebrate communion, remember the body that was broken, the blood that was spilled, so that the unsearchable riches of Christ could be ours. Elected to salvation, predestined as sons, redeemed by the blood, forgiven of our trespasses, sealed for eternity, made alive in Christ, created for good works, given the church as a family, enemies turned into proclaimers of God's great gospel. Amen? Amen. I want to...
read this psalm for us here. It says this, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. How does that, how does that happen? My soul makes us boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord, and He answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of his, all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you, his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. Unsearchable riches. They have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Amen? Amen. As we prepare to take communion here, I'm going to ask that those who are serving communion this morning, that they would come forward. um, That they would come forward, and then in a moment, uh, the band will come forward as I pray. Uh, as, as they come up here, they will serve the band. We'll do a little bit different this morning. They'll come up, and, uh, and then the band will be served and make their way to the stage. So, amen? Let's pray. Father, you have designed, you have designed this so that our hearts would yearn for something greater than our own provision, something greater than our own ability to take care of ourselves. From the very beginning, you've designed it that we would live underneath your gracious provision. And Father, you're gracious provision as we see in Genesis 2 ultimately finds its fulfillment in provision of everything salvation included in the unsearchable riches of your son Jesus Christ and father the way we begin to even think about and live in your provision is through the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ. So Father, if we want to taste and see that the Lord is good, we must taste and see through the blood and the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus. Father, that through His covering, the unsearchable riches of Christ become ours. And so, Father, as we partake in communion this morning, Father, let us see that these unsearchable riches of your Son, Jesus, 
become ours because of the blood that was shed for us, because of the body that was broken for us. So, Father, let us remember these great truths, these unsearchable riches that you have granted us understanding of thus far. Let us taste and see that you are a good Father. I give you praise, and it's in your Son's name we pray.